0: Amos 9, starting in verse 7, we read, Israelites, are you not like Cushites to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Didn't I bring Israel from the land of Egypt? The Philistines from Kaptor? And the Arminians from Ker. Look, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. And I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. For I am about to give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say, disaster will never overtake or confront us, will die by the sword. In that day, I will restore the falling shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seeds. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we have your word encapsulated in sentence form, that we might know you, that we might know what you are like, that we might know who we are and the problems with the world, and that we might know your love, and that your love is shown ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, help us today as we think about these weighty doctrines. Make them clear to us. Help us to see your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when we approach Thanksgiving, you often think of of things that are comfortable. You think of things of home. Uh, You think of things you grew up with and You know, for me, I'm from Harrelson County, Georgia in the foothills of Appalachian. When I was in high school, I had a buddy that had this joke, and I can't even remember everything about the joke, but I remember it was that they had to chain the Appalachian hillbillies up in heaven because they tried to go home on the weekends. And it was a silly joke, but I understand something of it being from that part of the country because those hills are never very far from your heart. And for me, it often starts with listening to four-part gospel singing, or maybe dulcimer music, or the band country band Alabama. And somewhere along the way, as I'm listening to this and thinking about home, I'll run across a song by the Judds that says, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. And there's a line in it that I want us to think about today as we think about our text, in which it says, is a promise really something people kept? Not just something they would say, and then forget. Because as we think about this passage, it's a good line to remember because God is a God who keeps His promises. He is a good God. His steadfast love endures forever. And God's promises often come in covenant form. Our kids are learning in their catechism. We'll ask them, what is a covenant? And they'll say a covenant is agreement between one or two people. Marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant for life between one man and one woman. For life. Church membership often comes with a covenant, it is the ethical counterpart to our biblical confession. We say, We believe these things from the Bible, therefore we will live like this and hold each other accountable. Cotton Mather, who was an American Puritan, I'm reading a book by him in my spare time, which isn't a lot, about the early formation of America, and he says that the pilgrims before they left England drew up a covenant. We commit to one another. And today we're going to think about the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant is God's promise to establish a permanent dynasty through David's line. God promises David that he will establish a permanent kingdom, a king, through his line. Now if we think back, think back to Sunday school for many of us, uh, uh, we haven't gone through First uh, and Second Samuel or, or Kings or any of that kind of stuff here, but if we think back to Sunday school days, and we think about Saul and David, think about David, you know, is an encounter with Goliath, think about David and Saul, Saul chasing David all around the countryside, and when David became king and he's got a war with these enemies, the enemies of Israel, Well, there comes a time in that story when God grants David and Israel victory over all their enemies. Complete victory that there's peace in the country. There's security in Israel. And David does what a lot of kings do, and he builds himself a palace. He builds himself a nice house at a cedar. And we don't have all the details, but uh, take a little bit of liberty here we, we can think of David sitting on his front porch or maybe he's at a party and he's sitting on a porch and he looks out there and he, he's, he's happy the war is done he's in this nice house and he just happens to look over and he sees the tabernacle and he thinks man I live in a house of cedar and the Lord's ark the ark of the covenant is in this ratty old tent and so he gets this idea and it's a pretty good idea he says you know what I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build the Lord a house, and we can put the ark in it, and it won't have to be in that ratty old tent that gets worn out and has to be replaced. We'll put it in a house. And so he goes to the preacher. He goes to Nathan the prophet and says, this is what I want to do. And Nathan thinks about it, and he says, do everything you're thinking. God is with you. Then Nathan goes home, and the Lord comes to Nathan. And the Lord says to Nathan, did I ask David to build me a house? And all this time, and all this moving around, when you're following a pillar of fire, you're following a pillar of cloud, when I'm feeding you with manna, when I'm doing all of these things, I'm giving you very specific instructions on how to do the ark in the tabernacle, did I ever tell you, build me a house? Never once. And so then God announces to David, He says, you will not build me a house. David because I'm going to build a house for you he announces that he will place one of David's ancestors on his throne forever a spiritual house God will appoint this king to be over his house and his kingdom forever this is a promise that the eternal God gives David the Davidic covenant This promise from God. And friends, this morning, I want to lay before you as we look at this text that God keeps His promises. He will restore the house of David, and He will fulfill the promise He made to David. Now, we live in a world where few keep their promises. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember back when you could do something on a handshake and it would happen. Maybe you're old enough to remember when someone said they were going to be there, they would. But we live in a world of failed marriages and split churches, don't we? We live in a skeptical world that doesn't believe one another when they say that something's going to happen. We believe in a world that says, i got to protect me, and no one is going to be let in. But God's not like that. God keeps His promises. So far in Amos, we've seen a lot of judgment. Israel has gone astray. They are not doing what they're supposed to do. They still go to temple. They still call themselves children of Abraham. But they're not following the one true and living God. They're not following His instruction. They're bringing other elements into their worship practices. Their hearts are far from God. They're corrupt. They're oppressing the poor. And God sends Amos, this sheep farmer and fig uh, farmer, from the southern kingdom, from Tekoa, to go to the northern kingdom and to preach repentance to them. From the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom. And here we continue to see this announcement of judgment. Just let your eyes fall on the first four verses. He says, Israelites, are you not like Cushites to me? Cush is like Ethiopia. A different name, right? So he says, aren't you like Ethiopians to me? Like you're not acting like my people? He said, didn't I bring you out of the land of Egypt? And this is how you're acting? He says, look at verse 8. Look, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful nation, and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Down in verse 9, he says, I'm about to give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, but not one pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say, disaster will never overtake or confront us, will die by the sword. Over and over and over as we read this verse, Chapter is this book. Some of you were even uncomfortable with it. There's just judgment upon judgment for Israel's rebellion. We saw over and over that rebellion and sin bring judgment. Remember that one chapter where he says that's what happens. It's like an equation: one plus one equals two. Sin and rebellion equal God's judgment. Because God is holy. He is a God of justice. He's a God who is righteous and punishes unrighteousness. Israel, they have corrupted what is good. They have turned righteousness to bitterness. They have lived selfish, indulgent lifestyles. And Amos warns them about their comfort. They, he says, woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who are comfortable on the hill of Samaria. Woe to you who are living for yourself. And he, he calls out the cows of Bashan. Right? The, the ancient Karens we called them. These women who do not follow God's design for marriage and they're self-indulgent and they lay around and tell their husbands, hey, bring me a drink. Then we see these men who can't wait till the feasts and the Sabbaths are over. They're, just, they're anxious sitting in church because they want to go out and exploit someone. They want to go out and make some more money. They don't care about the things of God. And we read that their time is going to come. In this passage, God says His eyes are on the sinful nation and He will destroy them. They will be shaken. Remember last week we saw it doesn't matter where you run, from the the highest mountain to the bottom of the sea, God is there. And in verse 9, He says He will shake them as a sieve. The purpose of a sieve was to trap the stalks and the husks and the rocks and all the other junk that got in with the grain, to trap it in there until the grain could fall through. And God says not one pebble, not one rebel, not one faker, Not one nominal Jew will get through. He's about to separate the good from the bad, the sinners from the pure of heart, the nominal from the genuine. There's not one stone that will be unturned because God sees all. The arrogant and confident will think they're okay, but they'll die by the sword. But a remnant will survive. A seed for the future of Jacob. God will not totally destroy the house of Jacob because He keeps His promises. And He's promised David what? That a king will come from him that will reign forever. God states that there's a coming a day when He will restore this fallen shelter of David. What does that mean? Well, we've already seen, right? He's going to build David a house. God will build David a house. And in Amos, we see that promise reaffirmed. And we see it affirmed in two ways. Two significant things God's going to do. And the first one is, He's going to raise up this fallen booth, this shelter, this tent, depending on your translation, for David. Look with me at verse 11. In that day I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Israel is about to be conquered by Syria. Assyria. Like it's gonna happen. You can look it up in history. It happens. They're about to be conquered. Like the think like the tanks on the the battle line on the on the lines of the country. Like it's about to happen. They're about to roll over and invade. And the Davidic line had been on decline in Judah, and Israel is being unfaithful. And Judah will soon be likewise conquered by Babylon. And God is promising here, he says, a king and salvation will come through David. Now there's a few passages I want us to look at. You don't have to turn there, but I want us to look at because they help fill out this. They help bring color to this doctrine. And the first one is in Genesis 17. Remember, God is talking to Abraham and Sarah, and He promises Abraham and Sarah that He would make them into nations. And that kings would come from their line. And through them, God would bless the world. So we, we see here that God promises, and God keeps His promises, and He promises blessing and kings would come through Abraham's line. Then we get to Second Chronicles 7 or First Chronicles 17, and we see God will build a house for David. One of David's sons will sit on this throne eternally, and God will be his father. And this king will be over God's house and God's kingdom forever. In Jeremiah 23, 5-6, God says that He will raise up a righteous branch for David. He shall reign as king. And the king will rule with righteousness, and the people will dwell securely. In fact, he says, Jeremiah, Jeremiah states that the king will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Just think about that from a Christian's perspective for a minute. The Lord is our righteousness. Next, Ezekiel 37. God says that My servant David will be king. My people will have one shepherd. My people will follow My ordinances. They will keep and obey My commands. I will make an everlasting covenant of peace with them. And My servant David will be their prince forever. Right? Do you see do you start to see here the the language we're reading? An everlasting covenant of peace. Their prince forever. My people will keep and obey my commands. They will have one shepherd. It will be a permanent covenant and they will be my people. This is in Ezekiel. And it's within this context of the Davidic covenant. And Ezekiel will read that God will set up a Davidic king for the people's one shepherd, that they will obey His command. They will be faithful. And this covenant will be permanent. It will be eternal. It will be unending a covenant of peace. And here in Amos, we see God says, you know what? You've gone astray. You've messed it up. You've brought all this other junk in. And, and some of you are going to die by the sword and I'm going to obliterate this kingdom. But I'm going to remain faithful to My promise And there will be a remnant. He will fill in the gaps of the shelter. He will repair its ruin. God will keep his promises and he will restore his people, and there will be bountiful blessings. Look at verses 13 through 14. He says, Look, there's coming days when, this is the Lord's declaration, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make their gardens and eat their produce. What does this mean? The plowman will overcome the reaper. In ancient Israel, the time between harvest and and planting was about six months. About six months there between when you take it all in and when you have to start putting the seeds back out. And God said there's going to be so much harvest. There's going to be so much harvest in that day that you're not going to have it all in the barns before you start putting out seed again. The plowman will overtake the reaper. It'll be time to plant again and you won't even have it all in yet. The one who trades grapes treads the grapes will overtake the sower of seeds. Same thing. The vineyards then will be so fertile that before they even finish planting the seeds, they're going to be making wine. They're still going to be trying to plant the garden and already they're going to have grapes and they're going to be making wine and the land is going to be overflowing with wine. It will no longer be cursed, but blessed. And the survivors of this coming season will be blessed with abundance. Verse 15, no longer uprooted. I will plant them in their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. Stability. Covenant promise no longer moved. Despite their infidelity, God would repair the house of David. He's going to keep His promises. But the second thing we see here in this promise at the end of Amos is that God will include Gentiles in this restoration. Look at verse 12. So that they may possess the remnant, they being Israel, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. Israel's restoration will include Gentiles. Israel's restoration will include those who are not physical descendants of Abraham. The nations will be grafted, grafted in to the Israel of God. Remember, Paul refers to Israel, uh, the church, as the Israel of God in Galatians. In Genesis 17, remember, we saw from Abraham and Sarah that they promised to make them into great nations, that all the nations will be blessed through them. In Matthew 8, 11, after a Roman centurion comes to Jesus for help, Jesus states this, I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That people will come that are not physical descendants of Abraham to the banquet table to eat. In Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, James, the Apostle James, he references Amos 9 when discussing the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. I'm just going to read it for you. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simon Peter has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophet agree with this, as it is written, after these days I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declare the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. So, there's this, there's this controversy in the early church of, do we include the Gentiles? And we have Paul and Barnabas there advocating for the Gentiles. And James stands up, and he quotes our passage today as one of the reasons why God has foretold inclusion of the Gentiles. You say, well, that sounds a little bit different than what you read. Well, James is using the Septuagint version, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. We're reading from a translation from the Hebrew, but it says the same thing. James quotes Amos when discussing this inclusion of the Gentiles, and he says that we should not cause difficulties for all the Gentiles who turn to God. Remember, Amos is already told to seek the Lord God and live. Amos foresees this grafting in of non-Israelites into the people of God, and the apostles recognize what is happening by the time of Acts. And it's kind of cool, and I get kind of excited when you read this passage and you think about it, because Amos, this sheep herder, this non-trained prophet from the southern kingdom, is preaching the gospel to the northern kingdom long before Christ ever came. Not in its fullness, but it's all there. God will keep his promises and include the Gentiles in that. God fulfilled the promise made to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through his line. God fulfilled the promise made to David that one of his sons would rule forever. God fulfilled the promise to repair the shelter of David. And God fulfilled the promise to make an everlasting, a new covenant with his chosen people. And you say, How was it fulfilled? How was this promise in Amos fulfilled? Well, we see it fulfilled in three ways. First, there was a partial fulfillment when the nation of Israel returned from Babylon in 538 B.C. So it's partially fulfilled by them returning from slavery and reoccupying the land. But there's a further fulfillment at the advent of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Luke 1. 26-38, 26-38, an angel comes to Mary, what does he say? He says, blessed are you among women, right? You're going to have, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to conceive, and you're going to have a son, but what does he say? What does he say exactly? He said, the child will be called Son of the Most High, and God will give him the throne of his father, David. God's going to give your son the throne of his father David. Do you ever think about that at Christmas, right? Like at Christmas when we're reading that story and we're hearing about Mary being blessed among women. Do you ever think about that the Davidic covenant is Gabriel's message to Mary? He's going to inherit his father David's throne. The Davidic covenant is central to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Jesus is the heir that the father foretold about. That, sh- that, that shelter repair, it's happening. It's happening. And it's coming through Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty two forty two 42-36, the Pharisees, are, they're questioning Jesus. They're asking Him all these questions. They're trying to trick Him. And the Pharisees come together and, and, and uh, Jesus questions them. He returns fire and He says, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is He? The Pharisees reply, David's. Then Jesus asks them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? And he, he quotes Psalm 110 and says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? And none of the Pharisees can answer. And from that time no one dared question him. What does this say? David saying to his, his Lord said to his Lord, his descendant, right? Isn't the, isn't the, the king greater than the prince? Isn't the, the descendant lesser than the one they're descended from? But in this passage, we see David calling his descendant Lord. We see that Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. He is fully man because he's David's son, his his biological heir. He's David's Lord because he is fully God, eternally existent. The promise to restore this house of David, to to rebuild this structure, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the one who is fully God and fully man. But then this promise... That we read here finds us complete fulfillment in the new heavens and the new Earth, when both Jew and Gentile will inherit the new creation. The Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, and it ends with God creating the new heavens and the new earth. The world has fallen. But God will restore and renew it. All of the elect will have new bodies that do not have the curse of sin, and they will dwell with Christ forever. And in that time, all that wine, all that harvest, all that plenty, all that perfection will be perfectly fulfilled as both Jew and Gentile called and elect dwell together in perfect harmony with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, God keeps His promises. His promise to Abraham, His promise to Moses, His promise to David, His promise of a new and everlasting covenant, and all of them find their perfect fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So how should we live in light of this passage? How should we think about this passage as we prepare to enjoy fellowship among one another today and with our family this week? Well, friends, I have four things that we can give thanks for as we close the book of Amos. First, be thankful for the warning we find in Amos. Be thankful for the warning we find in Amos. In this book, we are reminded that God calls His people to covenantal faithfulness. Amos is a warning to anyone who thinks they are safe. Amos is a a warning to anybody who is comfortable to evaluate their lives in light of what the Bible teaches. Remember, the problem with Israel is not that they didn't go to church. But that other things really occupied their heart. Right? The problem with Israel was not that they didn't claim to be the people of God, but they didn't do what God instructed. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, Jesus said. The New Testament warns us against nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. Putting on the Christian shirt and saying, I'm a Christian, yet living like the world. Christianity that does not obey God's commands. So we should be thankful when we read these passages, when we read these hard passages, for the warning they give us. Second, be thankful that God is a holy God. Some modern Christians don't like the message that confronts sin. They do not want to be confronted with a holy God. They don't want to face a God who demands righteousness. But could you imagine if things were different? Could you imagine if the reverse was true? Can you envision an unrighteous and unholy, all powerful God? One who does not punish sin and an all-knowing and all-powerful being who allows injustice to flourish. Could you imagine what that world would look like? I mean, we look at cities around us that let anarchy reign and we think those guys are crazy. I would never want to live there. But could you imagine what the universe would look like if God was not holy and did not restrain sin and did not through his common grace and did not desire righteousness? We'd be like a cosmic Portland. But rather than pulling away from books like Amos, rather than being confronted by our sin, rather than seeing God is holy and I don't want, we should turn into the swerve and we should look at these and we should thank God that we have a holy God and not an unholy one. But he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, and so do his promises. So third, be thankful that our God is faithful to His promises. God's Word is truth. John 17, 17 tells us that. He cannot lie. It's not as though God wants to lie and He's restrained from some outside source. It is not in God's being to be untruthful. He, lying is not a part of His nature. It's not a part of His holy character. He is a God of truth. And He is sovereign over His creation. There's not one molecule outside of His control, and He will keep His promises. He will keep His promises. So when we cut into that turkey on Thursday, we should thank God, just take a moment, and be thankful that He is faithful to His promises. Fourth, be thankful that God is a God of mercy. God could have destroyed Adam and Eve on the spot when they rebelled. But instead, he was merciful. He could have decided not to make a covenant and not to make a promise with Abraham and Moses and David and and with us. He could have left you and I to our own demise and he would still be just and holy. He could have let Alan McElroy destroy himself and enter into eternal damnation because that's what I deserve and he would still be just and holy. But he is a God of mercy. we see that he sovereignly draws men and women who do not deserve it. He sovereignly draws men and women who deserve wrath to himself according to his eternal foreordination. Friends, be thankful that God is a merciful God and that all who seek him find life. God always keeps his promises. God kept His promises to Abraham that He would one day bless the nation through him. He kept His promise to David that his descendants, one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. God promised Amos that he would restore the house of David and graft in the Gentiles. And He promised an everlasting covenant of peace. And we see that God promises to save everyone who truly turns to Him in genuine repentance. All those whom He's called, He promises to save but he also promises to punish the unrepentant rebel. His eyes are everywhere. We've seen that over and over through this book. There's nowhere we can hide. From the top of Deer Mountain to the bottom of Beam Canal, he's there. He sees you. He sees our hearts. And Amos is a clarion call for each of us to examine our hearts. What does he see in there? Maybe you've been living a selfish lifestyle. Maybe you read Amos and you think, well, that doesn't sound that bad. I mean, maybe people need just to lighten up. Maybe you're ignoring God's commands or ignoring the command to prioritize gathering with His people. Maybe you're at ease in Zion, secure on the hill of Samaria. Maybe you're the one who likes to lay around on the cushion, spending your time idle. Maybe you don't honor God's structure for marriage. Maybe you ignore the command to love God. Maybe you focus on cultivating your look and your image among people rather than focus on cultivating your soul in holiness. Do you genuinely care about the mission of this church? Maybe you're ignoring the command to love one another. You know, the Israelites, they didn't love one another. Think about the guys who are swindling their fellow Israelites. It would be like swindling your fellow churchmen or f- members for financial gain. Two pounds of meat and a half a pound of thumb, remember? Just a little bit extra, no one will notice. Maybe you're the one who fudges the numbers on your taxes. Maybe you're the one who's selfish. Maybe you're seeking to serve yourself rather than others. As we read this book, we are called to examine ourselves and to seek God and live, to turn back to Him. Maybe you've never trusted Christ. Christ secured salvation for His people by dying in their place. Christ established the new and everlasting covenant. Christ will reign forever as King. That is truth. God has told us. Do you feel Him drawing you today? Do you feel Him calling you to Himself? Do you see the beauty of who Christ is? Do you look at this passage, this whole book, and see the nasty dirtiness of your heart? And see the beauty and wonder and holiness of Christ? He commands you to repent and believe the Gospel. To confess your sin and turn to Him. To confess all of those things that you are doing and turn to Him. Amos commands us, seek the Lord and live. John writes, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has promised to save those who will come to Him in genuine repentance. You say, well, you say God draws. Yes, He does. And He also says that everyone who genuinely repents, He will save. We've seen it in His Word. He keeps His promises. And those two are not against one another. Maybe you think, well, I've got too great a sin. I don't care. Paul says he was a murderer and a blasphemer. It doesn't matter what you've done. If the Lord is calling you, He can save Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and yet God saved him. And Romans 8.1 says that all of us who have sinned, if it is nailed to the cross, we bear it no more. It doesn't say that exactly. It says there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what sin can you hide? You're not hiding it from God. You may hide it from me. Confess it to God and be free of it turn to him, turn to a steadfast and loving good God who promises to save sinners by the blood of his son because he is faithful to keep his promises. God, you are good. God, You are steadfast love is immovable and it endures forever. As we finish Amos, help us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. As we contemplate Amos, God, help us to see the difference in true security and false security. Father, as we close this book, let us not be at ease in Zion, but found with our hand to the plow, faithfully serving You, all because of Your unmerited love that we do not deserve. And we pray in Christ's name, Amen.